Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the horrors of trying to fix things. Well, after two consecutive weeks of tour announcements, things return to normal for this episode. It's been very exciting to see the responses to both the Halloween tour and the Euro 2020 tour. All the tickets for every show are now on sale, and many venues are selling quickly. We're grateful for the tremendous support we get from you, our wonderful fans. Remember to go to the nosleeppodcast.com slash tour for all the tour details and tickets. And so while you wait to experience us with your eyes, we have many tales for your ears right now. So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a mother who's struggling to keep her son happy. As shared with us by author S.J. Budd, it can be difficult to keep children entertained. Every look of disappointment, every tear, it's easy to take it personally and feel like you're letting your child down. But there have to be boundaries, and sometimes your child might not like to hear them. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson and David Alt. So settle in and get the toys out, because it's playtime. But be careful where you step, because Lego lasts forever. Don't do it like that. Do it like that, Mommy. His slap stings my arm. More sharp Lego is thrust at my face, right when I'm trying to pee. I never dare shut the door to him. (sighs) Not now, Blake. I'm busy. He glowers at me. Even by three years old, he's bitterly disappointed. My motherly shortcomings revealed. He hates having been born to me. But I never wanted this. I didn't ask for him, but he came regardless. I love him. But it wasn't my choice that brought him into this world. I was that unfortunate girl who got pregnant by the first guy to look deeply into my eyes and say he loved me. He didn't mean it. He never stuck around. Neither did my friends. They all got out of this shithole town. They went through university, had fun, got jobs and took themselves off to the cities like untethered birds. Limited only by what they could dream of. Now they saw miles above me. Speaking a language I don't understand. I live off state benefits. Though I could have been something had this not happened. 
I could have done things with my life too. They say motherhood is the greatest joy on earth. They say a lot of things. Mommy! My shoulders sag with his drag on me. He keeps me down and tethered to his every woman need. They fluctuate with every passing minute. I'll never be myself again. Even after he grows up and moves out. Every day he takes from me. My food, my money, my joy, my time, my life. But I do love him. This little creature, born from my blood, my heart and soul. I can't deny him that. I thought it would have got easier as he got older. But he senses my detachment. Children can be wise too, and he feels me trying to escape from him. He does all he can to pull me back down to him and hold me there. He'll never let me go. I don't want him to either. And now here we are, locked into this never-ending state of push and pull. Today we are playing Lego. We're always playing Lego. It's expensive, but at least it'll last forever. Hopefully he'll never grow bored of it, even when he's a sour teenager eager for something to hate. We play with these bricks for hours. He never gives me rest. I want to be sat on the sofa with a coffee and a book. I want to be somewhere else entirely, but a good book can do that for a few blissful, transient moments. I could never afford to go anywhere. I could never leave him. I'm building his Ninar police car that he breaks time and time again. Each time I tell him that this will be the last rebuild. My mother scolds me that he's too young for Lego, but it's what he wants, what he gets. I don't have the energy to endure his hate as well as his love. When it's made, he'll be quiet. I'll have earned a few minutes of peace. He didn't sleep well last night, so we didn't sleep well. I'm obliged to be awake when he is. We live by his clock. I'm left a wreck having to deal with his frustrations along with mine that I've carried on my back since childhood. Blake's been complaining that there's a monster in his wardrobe which comes out at night. He doesn't like its raspy voice and the prickles on its back that tickle his face when it climbs up into bed with him. Or the smell. Blake moans that it smells worse than wee-wee. He doesn't like the stories it tells him long into the night. He says the monster promised him all his dreams if he pays the price. Poor boy. He's yet to realise that monsters aren't furry friends lurking in the dark, but people who walk this earth among us, staining our lives. There are friends, our bullies, our bosses, our lovers, and there's no getting away from them. I'll never get away from him. I put two bricks together before I'm plunged into my third existential crisis of the day. Is this all there is going to be? It's time for a coffee. I just have to endure this until 7pm. If I'm lucky, he'll fall asleep earlier and I'll have a brief respite. Until it all starts again. I pour in Tia Maria into my coffee. I've been doing that a lot lately. This is my fourth one today. Only because I need a release. I don't care where it comes from. No one knows. No one minds. Blake, honey, I need to cook dinner for Nana and Grandpa. They're coming over later and we're going to play at Happy Families in a brief respite. He throws all the Lego out of the box, scattering bricks far and wide across the front room. I hear them rattling over the floor as they slide to a still under the sofa. I can't count all those little pieces that I'm going to have to find and pick up. I'll need another coffee for this. I want to play Lego with you forever. He stands as tall as he can, forcing himself into a man. 
tears sting his eyes. He's hurting, and it's so much worse than his tantrums. I'm a spineless coward. I have to walk away if I'm to stay sane. I can't be near him. Can't look upon that face. I shut the door. He can't reach the handle to open it, and instead he bangs his little fists, wishing it was me he was hitting. I can't do this today. But tomorrow, I'll be better. There are so many things he will never learn about me. One of them is that I love him so much, but I can't show it. He'll go through his whole life and never know it. I got cold on the inside. He's screaming and screaming while I do nothing. I can't be moved by it. I love him, but I can't today. An existential crisis hits me with the force of a hundred oncoming galloping black stallions. This time I cry. It's good to let some of it out. I failed him and myself. I never got my chance to fall in love. I hadn't been allowed to have a good man, someone I could have loved with all my teeth. Had I been granted a family that way, of my own choosing, it would have been okay. Instead, I've spawned a clone of the man I despised the most. He left me and started a nice, sweet family with someone else. There's another woman out there. She's living the life that by rights should be mine. One day, Blake will blame me for this. Blake becomes very quiet on the other side of the door. He's become used to me pushing him away. Shame burns my cheeks. Has the Goblin King come for him? Would that be a bad thing? I run back to the front room where I left him locked in. What's made him so quiet like that? My thoughts turn to dark things. Could he be in trouble? Is he choking to death all alone? My veins flood with overwhelming love for him. He drives me crazy, but he keeps me together. Without him, I'm nothing. The door almost swings back into my face as I run in, my limbs powered from motherly love. For a few moments, I can't see him. I look around. I can't hear him breathing. I step in, afraid of the pervading silence. Something has happened here. There's something here that I have inadvertently allowed to slip in. Something else has found its way into the room. I feel it. Blake! He's there. I find him sat out of sight behind the sofa. He's lying on the floor playing Lego and nodding his head as if in deep conversation with someone I can't see. His cheeks so full and plump. I just want to start again with him. I want to be the best mother I can be. He jumps up when he sees me. Has a look upon his face that suggests he's been up to no good. I don't probe him to find out what he's done. We've had enough upset for one day. Now he's all smiles, and I cherish fleeting moments like these. Go and do your cooking, Mummy, and then you can play Lego with me forever. He cackles at his own wit and charm. <laughs> Whatever it is he's done, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I get back to the cooking. It's a mindless chore that lets my mind run, allowing me to detach. He lets me be for the rest of the afternoon. I use all my anger to wash away dusty limescale, conquering the shower door with my fury. It shines like a mirror. My arms ache. I wish I could do more for him. Rise up and conquer as other single lioness mothers do, building up their own business empires, powering themselves from a ferocious strength only mothers possess. But I'm not like those heroes. I'm too much like myself. Too busy surviving each day to stop and think about what little future I have. This cleaning has to be done. I have a date tomorrow night, 
My first. Kind of funny it comes after I've had a kid. I met him in my local supermarket. Got chatting to him when I couldn't find the Marmite. He has to come round to mine. I have no friends to call on for babysitting duties. It's embarrassing, as is most of my life. But I have a feeling this could really be the start of something. I can take Blake out of this hideous life and give him what he's always wanted. A loving family and home. I clean and clean to get things ready once the bathroom is done. I tackle the carpets, but only after all the toys and mess have been cleared. I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. As I clean instead of playing with my son, I convince myself that this is what a good mum is, making a home out of a cheap two-bed council flat. Maybe this date will go well. It could lead somewhere. We're both the same. Neither of us have a grand plan. We're both plodding along. Each month, we'll struggle with the bills. There'll be too much month left at the end of the money. Things will be tight forever, but at least I won't go through all this monotony on my own. I don't care whether I fall in love with him, or him falling for me, just as long as I have someone. Tomorrow, I vehemently vow as I scrape the brown from the toilet. I'm going to change. I'm going to be a better mum. I won't let Blake fall into this life of mine. That's why I keep him separate from me. I want something different for him. Overnight, my vows take seed. I wake up fully charged. I'm going to make a change. Something's happened already. I'm not in my bed where I was when I closed my eyes. I'm cold and stuck. My limbs rigid. Not even my muscles can twitch under my futile command. Am I still sleeping? I try to shuffle to see what's what, but I can't seem to move. Something's very wrong. Could it be that my skin and bones have been replaced? Everything around me is so shiny and cold. Brilliant colours reflect into a nauseating kaleidoscope haze. Once again, I try to wriggle free, but I'm stuck firm in place. I can't move my neck to look around. My eyes see like tunnels. All they can gather are bright colours, but no texture or shapes, only shine. I'm in the front room. The curtains are still drawn. Red shadows from the blinds pool in the darkness. I'm covered in Lego. But it's worse than that. I'm cold and stiff. But I'm not dead. It's much worse. I'm in the Lego. I am the Lego. The price is paid. What has he done to me? My own son. In the reflection from one of his toys, I see myself. Someone stuck me in the Lego chair behind the red steering wheel inside Blake's favourite Ninar lorry. I stare out to the radiator which is chipped and splattered with ketchup. I can't move. I can't turn. Can't close my eyes against this. Can't allow my heart to stop beating. It's gone. But yet I still endure. I went to bed as Kim and woke up reborn into an eternally smiling mummy made into Lego with yellow hands and an everlasting smile. Did Blake do this? Who else could it have been? An ultimate act of love. He's bound me. Now he has me all to himself. No distractions. But in this state, I can't talk. I can't scream, which is what I really want to do right now. I can't breathe. I can only smile. Blake comes running down the stairs into the front room. 
This is better than Christmas morning. He wants to see if his dreams have come true. His hair is still sticking up and he's still wearing his jimmy jams. The monster turned out to be really nice, said he who would look after him. He runs straight to his Nina lorry and picks it up carefully with both hands. He's not going to break it this time. Yes, he beams, she is inside. She's not frowning like she usually is. Now she is happy. He's rescued her. Hello, mommy. Are you ready to play Lego forever? She doesn't respond to him, which he doesn't like. He doesn't like being ignored. Things are supposed to be different now. He shakes his Nina lorry a little more to see if she moves. She doesn't. Hot anger builds up and takes him. He throws the Nina lorry on the floor and it falls into pieces. He doesn't know how to put it back together. Only she could do that. No fair. He sighs as he lifts the lid to his toy box and retrieves something new. He's too busy to play with her. Now he's into dinosaurs. His interest is piqued slightly when he sees Lego Mummy wriggling on the floor. She wants to get up, but she can't. Only he has the power to move her limbs and put her in places. Mummy is trying to get his attention and he feels a certain satisfaction that she's now in his shoes. Not now, Mummy. I'm busy. It's nice to go on a romantic trip with your loved one. Go out for dinner, take in the sights. Uh, very romantic. But in this tale, shared with us by author Blair Daniels, our amorous pair discover they're lacking something on their couple's getaway. Gas. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Peter Lewis, and Nicole Goodnight. So why not pull into the nearest town to fill up your tank? But when you get there, pay attention to your surroundings. Not everything is as it seems, but still, welcome to Pleasanton. most terrifying words you can hear when you're barreling down the highway through an empty desert. Don't worry, though. We got an exit coming up. Pleasanton. One mile. I scanned the empty sand. I don't see anything from here. What if it leads us 50 miles in the wrong direction? Well, it's this or breaking down on the side of the road, sweet bee. Your choice. I took one look at the buzzards circling overhead and told him to turn. 
My heart sank as soon as we pulled into the little town. It was one of those towns. You know, the kind. Where rich women spend their Sundays buying a whole lot of nothing with their husband's money. Where bed and breakfasts are the norm. Wi-Fi is unheard of. And you have to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee. And where gas stations are non-existent because they're an eyesore. I don't see a gas station. Relax, I'm sure there's one around here somewhere. The flag above Linda's salon flapped noiselessly in the wind. The tables outside of Cafe Italiano stood empty under a striped awning. A train station sat in the distance, visible through a narrow alleyway. But no gas station. Maybe we should ask someone. If you can find someone, sure. Despite the town's quaint charm, despite the perfectly manicured grass, the freshly painted siding, the myriad of shops, we had yet to see a single soul. The road branched, and Brandon swung right. This street looked the same as the last, except for the park, squashed between Elle's dresses and very berry pies. It was perfect, like the rest of the town, as if ripped from a painting. The green grass rippled in the wind. The pond was still and glassy, reflecting the cloudless sky above. Let's try this one. Brandon took the next left, but we were somehow back on the same road again. Linda's salon, Cafe Italiano, all exactly as we left them. Even the train was parked in the same spot as before. We went in a circle. Good job. Uh, let's stop and get our bearings. We rolled to the curb. I pulled out my phone. A quick glance at maps would tell us where we were, where the nearest gas station was. I was staring at a black screen. My phone was dead. Huh, mine's dead too, but I... I could have sworn I charged it before we left. Oh, just like you could have sworn you filled the tank? Come on, this was supposed to be a fun trip, huh? For our anniversary? Don't ruin it with a petty fight. Petty? We're stranded in the middle of some backwards town out of gas. And it's your fault. But I took a deep breath and nodded. Brandon swung the door open. Let's go into the bakery. Ask someone there. I heaved myself out of the car. As soon as I did, a gust of wind blew through my hair, flipping it over my face. Great. I trudged out of the car and joined Brandon at the window. It's empty. I looked inside. There sat a beautiful array of baguettes, rolls, and loaves. Crispy golden crusts that I could almost taste. Layers of cinnamon sugar, perfectly applied, as if by paintbrush. Nuggets of nut and raisin dotting the surfaces. As fresh as the breads looked, there wasn't a baker in sight. Or any customers. And when I took a deep breath in, I didn't smell butter and dough, but the acrid burn of paint and plastic. Let's go down this way. We've got to run into somebody at some point, right? Begrudgingly, I followed him onto the sidewalk. After a few minutes, we rounded the corner, and the park came back into view. It looked even more perfect up close. 
The violet swayed in the wind. The leaves shuddered, shifting the shadows across grass, making it appear like the ground itself was moving. The pond glimmered brightly as ever, the reflection undisturbed by ripples. Almost too perfect. Do you want to check it out? I thought we were looking for people to get out of this place. But look, it's so pretty. Fine. We walked across the street, my coat billowing out behind me. I undid the lock on the gate and stepped inside. This is kind of nice. A gust of wind blew across my face, sending a clump of hair into my mouth. I sputtered, realizing what was wrong. Despite the wind, the pond didn't have a single ripple. I ran towards it, kicking up dirt behind me. Caroline, what are you- But I ignored him, running across the grass as fast as I could. I fell to my knees, took a hand from my pocket, and stretched it out to the water. My fingers hit a smooth, solid surface. It's not water. It's glass. Brandon stooped and hit it with a heavy hand. What? He stared at me, wide-eyed. What in the world? I stumbled over to the cluster of violets. My fingers fell upon bumpy, hard stems. Not smooth, supple ones. Plastic. They're plastic. It's all fake. I leaned against the oak tree. I think this tree is fake, too. But why? I don't know. It's so weird, isn't it? More like disturbing, but... He stopped, his eyes locked on the shop to our right. I followed his gaze. In one of the shop windows stood a woman, watching us. I ran out of the park, across the perfectly clean sidewalk, to the front of Elle's dresses and banged on the glass. Hello? The woman was gone. Maybe we should just forget about it, huh? It doesn't seem like she wants to talk to us. Do you want to get out of this town or not? Hello? Excuse me? Behind the shaking glass, the lavishly dressed mannequins stared at us with blank faces, as if silently judging us. I tried the door. Locked. Then I cupped my hands over the windows. And gasped. Beyond the dress forms, there was nothing. Just a large, empty room. No dresses, no clothes, no inventory at all. It's not a real store. Just a facade. Uh, I looked up. In the distance sat the train, in the same place as before. I wonder... It took us 20 minutes to walk to the station. When we finally got there, it was my turn to be disturbed. There were no train tracks. Well, unless you count crudely painted railroad ties on the asphalt. No wonder I hadn't seen it move since we arrived. It was a train sitting on flat ground. Brandon laid a hand on my shoulder. We shouldn't go any closer. This whole thing feels weird. Like a... Like a what, Brandon? 
like a trap. I glanced at the windows. Within a few of them, I saw the dark silhouettes of people contrasting starkly with the yellow light. There are people in there. Maybe they can help us. I started towards it. Caroline, no, we should What, you want to walk around this town forever? No, but... I wheeled around, the anger suddenly bubbling inside of me. No. You know where I thought you were taking me? New York City. To see a Broadway show. Or climb to the top of the Empire State Building. Caroline... You said that's where we were going. You said it! But then you lost that game of poker with Greg. And suddenly, the plans changed. At least have the decency to admit it. But... So you find some stupid little bed and breakfast. And then, to top it all off, you forget to get gas. And we wind up stranded in this dinky little town. I yanked away from him. With a deep breath, I climbed the metal stairs and pulled the door open. Hello? The yellow light flickered. Seats, upholstered with red fabric, flanked the aisle. They were empty. The pockets on each seat back were also empty, as were the luggage racks overhead. Hello? Brandon stepped in behind me. Okay, we'll explore this thing. Just let's try to make it quick, okay? I ignored him and walked farther down the aisle. Hello? Every single seat was empty. Hello? There, painted on the window, was the silhouette of a man. Caroline! I whipped around. Brandon was standing by one of the seats, his face pale. I know where the voices are coming from. I rushed over. He was pointing, frantically, to something embedded in the arm of the chair. I crouched down to get a better look. It's a speaker. The sound reverberated through the metal of the train, shaking the floor underneath us. I looked up, and through the window at the front, I saw something. A shadow in the next car, coming towards us. We ran down the aisle, past the empty chairs, the silhouettes on the windows, the speakers and their recordings of chatter. The doors rolled open behind us. A tall, thin man walked in, wearing a tuxedo and a mustache. As soon as his eyes met ours, he quickened his pace. Caroline, stop staring and run! Brandon pulled me out of the car. We ran down the street, past the fake trees, the glass pond, the empty shops. We ran until our legs ached, our lungs burned, Our feet stung. There, the church. In front of us stood a church. One of the doors was propped open. Faint organ music spilled out into the air. It would have been beautiful under different circumstances. We ran into the atrium. Brandon lifted the welcome sign, and with a grunt, pushed it through the handles to barricade the door. Let's get inside. He pulled open the door. No, the church wasn't empty. The pews were filled with people. They all sat, still and quiet, faces turned towards the front. 
My heart leapt with hope. I grabbed the arm of the nearest woman, black-haired and dressed in her Sunday best. Hey, can you help us? She slid off the pew and clattered to the floor. No, no. I stepped back, my heart pounding. It was a mannequin. They were all mannequins. Stiff dresses and suits covered their bodies. Blank expressions graced their plastic skin. I stared at them, glancing at each lifeless face, a heavy terror setting in my heart. Caroline. I whipped around. Brandon was pointing to the front of the church. There stood a woman. Or, rather, the skeleton of one. It appeared she had died at least several years ago from the state of her body. Sunken flesh, bleached bones poking out through the papery skin, eyes pressed shut. But she was dressed for a wedding. A new, crisp white wedding gown covered her body. Makeup was expertly applied to her discolored skin. A shiny wig had been carefully pinned over her decaying, patched scalp. She was propped up against the altar, as if awaiting her groom. What in the hell? I don't know. We walked down the aisle. The painted eyes of the mannequins stared at us blankly. A blonde woman in a summer hat, her plastic hair trailing down her neck. A dashing man, eyes dull and black, wearing a stiff gray suit. We should get out of here. It's only a matter of time before he finds us. A hand shot out from the pew and latched onto mine. I lost my balance. Pain shot through my knees. I screamed and tried to yank my hand away, but she was so strong, pulling me into the pew. I looked up. It wasn't one of the mannequins, but a woman. The same woman from the shop. In the light of the church, I realized she was quite young, maybe twenty at most. We don't have much time. When he gets here, he'll... he'll... I can protect you, I promise. Just come with me. It's another trap, just like the train. I'm telling the truth. Then tell us the truth about everything. Who is he? Why is everything fake? He's... my father. Brandon and I looked at each other. My mother died ten years ago. And after she did, he got a little... obsessed. (laughs) He wanted to recreate their perfect wedding day. Down to the quaint little town they got married in. Why not just move back to that town? It had already changed significantly since that day. A Domino's where Cafe Italiano used to be, a parking garage on top of the park, not to mention the tons of tourists visiting from the city every weekend. Why does he want to hurt us? I mean, we'll sit in on his little corpse wedding if it means he'll let us go. No, he won't have it. People are imperfections, according to him. This is his perfect town, and he wants no one messing it up, and he- The doors of the church shook and shuddered, making a sickening, splintering crack each time they were hit. Let me in! Let me in, V! Come on. We followed her to the back of the church, down a dark set of stairs. The air grew thick and musty. Cold emanated from the stone walls. 
she led us through a few doors, locking each one as we went by. As we entered a narrower tunnel, we slowed to a walk. Walk that way, 30 minutes. You'll come up on the other side. There's a convenience store there on the outskirts of Franklin. They'll give you a lift. What about my car? She stared at Brandon without a smile. Don't come back for it. V was true to her word. In a half hour, we had resurfaced on the other side, next to a mom-and-pop convenience store. While Brandon called for a ride, I stared across the desert at Pleasanton. In the distance, I heard the faint toll of wedding bells ringing out across the sand. When you've lost a parent, there's a lot to talk about. There's even more than normal for the man we meet in this tale, shared with us by author Donald Sherman. You see, this man's father died in a most horrific way, and there's a lot for him to unpack after what he's heard and seen. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, Mick Wingert, Addison Peacock, Kyle Akers, and Graham Rowett. So pay attention to what this man has to share, because this father-son relationship was challenging, and we should listen as he tells us what haunts me. So... I'm going to give this a try and see if it helps. Honestly, honestly, I don't think anything can help me at this point, but I feel like I've got to try. I'm not going to last much longer like this. I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I can barely keep it together long enough to get out of bed in the morning, and I'm I'm worried that I'm not going to keep winning that fight. So I'm going to try something new. Not exactly new. When I was a kid, after we lost mom, I I went to a counselor for a while. She suggested that I try something like this, but I don't know. It always seemed kind of silly to me. I guess it still does, but clearly, clearly I'm desperate enough that I'm willing to try anything to move past what, what happened. Who are you talking to? No one. I'm recording myself. I I just thought that saying it out loud would help. I thought, I don't know. Can I come in? Yeah, of course. Let me just turn the recorder off. Don't. Let it run. Keep talking if you think it'll help. I just want to be near you. Don't let me interrupt. Don't stop. Keep going. I think this is a good idea. 
Okay. <clears throat> so, um, I can't sleep. I said that already. Shit. That's okay. This is just for you, right? It doesn't matter if you repeat yourself. No one is going to hear this. You will, but I guess you're used to hearing me repeat myself, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm your wife. It's kind of in the job description. Do you know how many times I've heard you tell that story about the time you shared an elevator with Christopher Walken? Could you press lobby for me? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you, Alma. I love you too, Sandy. Now get yourself together and do this. You need to say it aloud. I need you to say it. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Three weeks ago, my dad died. That's how this started, uh, so I guess that's where I should... It started with my dad dying. He... Stop it. I can do this. I can do this. Sorry. My dad died three weeks ago. He had been sick. Not bedridden or anything, he just, he just had a bad cold. He did what we all do. He, he loaded up on over-the-counter medication and he tried to push through it. See, he used to clean buildings for a living. He had a pretty tight schedule to keep. Uh, he, he was manager for this janitorial outfit that cleaned buildings all over the Southeast. His territory went from Columbus, Georgia, uh, all the way over to Mobile, Alabama. So he was on the road a lot. I don't imagine it was easy work for a man in his 60s, but he had been doing it for a long time. When I was little, when I was a kid, he, uh, he had other jobs. He was a CPA, you know, an accountant. You see, what happened, the reason he started cleaning buildings, he... You know what? It isn't important. He had a career, it ended, and he started working for the janitorial company. Now, I, I don't mean to be snobby or whatever, but I never understood that decision. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that... I didn't look down at it or anything, but he had worked so hard to build a career and then he just decided to throw all of that away. Is this really what you want to talk about? No. You're right. I'm sorry. Stop apologizing. Just remember why you're doing this. Why am I doing this? Dude, I found you hunched over a cassette recorder in a dark room. The fact that you took the effort to drag that ancient recorder out of whatever hole it's been sitting in makes me think you thought about this before starting. I don't know why you decided this would help, but if it can... You aren't okay. You aren't even in the neighborhood of okay. If this can help, then you need to try. I need you to try. I know. Okay, so Dad had been sick for a while. It was just a cold, but it kept getting worse and he wasn't doing anything about it. When I called him, we used to talk every Sunday afternoon. He sounded awful. Hey, Sandy. Uh, uh. Hey, Dad. 
Hey, you don't sound so hot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> can't seem to shake this. <laughs> Gets harder the older you get to uh, get over these things. You'll see. <laughs> you know what? You haven't sounded well for weeks. I, I really think you should go see a doctor. No, no, no. I'm all right. I'm about due for another round of cold medicine here in a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, that'll help. Anyway, I'll be all right. How have you been? I'm fine. Work is busy, but it's fine. Just life, you know. Yep. <clears throat> I know. <clears throat> Still, you have a great job and that beautiful wife of yours. You got a pretty good kiddo. <clears throat> <clears throat> Dad? Dad, are, are you okay? Hey, talk to me. <laughs> Shit. Dad? Hey, do I need to call 911? Are you okay? I'm okay, son. Uh, I just got choked up a little. Uh, nothing to worry about. It's damn cold. Oh, maybe I will go to the doctor tomorrow. Why not today? It sounds pretty bad. I know it's late, but you could go to urgent care. No, I have a, a building in <coughs> a building in Troy that has to get done tonight. <coughs> None of my people will go there. Something about the place that makes people uneasy. Even my <coughs> even my best guys won't clean there after dark. <coughs> <laughs> it's not a <coughs> it's not a joke. <coughs> Bill, remember him? <sighs> He said he'd quit before he went back to that place. Said it uh, wasn't right. Oh, wait, you're serious? Didn't that guy fight in Vietnam or something? Two tours, yeah. Yeah, Bill doesn't scare easy, and he's a, <laughs> he's a hard worker. He never turned down any other job, day or night. That man will go wherever I send him, with one, <laughs> with one exception. Is it really that bad? Look, I don't like it either. It's an old facility. It used to be a, a government building or something. Now it's just used for long-term storage, I guess. It's a big place. The current owners only use the top floors. I'm not sure what they keep in there, but I can tell you, people are rarely in and out of that place. <coughs> it stays vacant most of the time. Which means they don't need it cleaned regularly, but they they call us in a couple of times, a couple of times a year. <coughs> we have to be willing to come in within 24 hours of being called, and we have to do the cleaning at night. It's not a hard job. Like I said, people rarely use it, so there isn't much to clean, but you know, sometimes there's stains, puddles. Messes that need cleaning, you know, that sort of thing. Messes that don't make sense in a place like, <laughs> like that. <coughs> Dad. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. All right. Anyway, we got the call tonight. And <coughs> since someone has to go in there and, and no one else will go, that someone is me. Okay, just promise me you'll go to the doctor tomorrow. Sure thing, son. I got a call the next day. Dad had dragged himself into an emergency room in Troy before collapsing in the waiting room. 
He showed up there around three in the afternoon, which didn't make sense to me. Why was he still in Troy? The job should have been done the night before. Why, why didn't he go home? Why was it so late when he finally made it to the hospital? I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it too much then. I was only an hour away when the call came in, so I just, I just hopped in the car and drove there as fast as I could. What happened? We aren't sure. He walked into the waiting room of the ER, and before he could say anything, he collapsed onto the floor. We rushed him back, and almost right away his breathing stopped. We don't know why. He had no apparent injuries, no obstruction to his airways, there were no signs of allergic reaction, heart attack, or stroke. He just stopped breathing on his own. We've run every test we can think of, and so far we can't tell what's wrong with him. The ventilator is keeping him breathing for now and everything else seems stable at the moment. He hasn't woken up at all? No. He's been unconscious since he fell in the lobby. How long does it usually take people like this to wake up? There aren't people like this. Your father doesn't seem to have anything wrong with him, other than the fact that he stopped breathing and remains unconscious. I think there's a good chance he can breathe on his own, and we're going to try to take him off the ventilator soon if all of his vitals stay strong. I wish there was more that we could do, or something definitive I could tell you. Sometimes we just don't know. Things just got worse after that. So much worse. I I, I don't think I can do this. Who could do this? Sweetie, you can stop if you need to, but... I think you need to get this out. You've never even told me what happened exactly. It was all done by the time I got there and no one would talk to me. You were covered in all that blood just sitting there crying. That administrator from the hospital said he had been instructed not to talk about it. And when I cornered one of the nurses and asked her what happened, she just started crying and shaking her head. The police, the news, everyone was vague about what happened. I haven't wanted to push you to tell me, but I feel like I can't help you if I don't understand. I know something horrific happened and that you saw it happen, but I just don't understand. I'm not a doctor or a therapist, and maybe talking about it won't help. I don't know. I just know that nothing seems to help, and ever since it happened, it's like... It's like part of you never left that room. I miss you. (sighs) The thing is, I'm not even sure that I understand what happened. It started when I was out of the room. I I had gone down the hall to get some coffee, and... When I came back to his room, they were trying to resuscitate him. I guess his heart had stopped at some point and they were doing compressions to try and get it, to try and get it started again. There were so many people in the room, doctors, nurses, even some security staff, all all wearing gloves and taking turns giving him CPR. I guess it's so they they don't get tired or something. I I, I don't know, but it, It went on forever. I just stood there outside the door and watched. They they tried medicine, 
They tried shocking him, but nothing worked. Person after person took turns doing compressions on his chest, and I just stood there and watched. I couldn't take my eyes off it, that, that, that thing on his stomach. I, I didn't notice it before because he had been in a hospital gown, but he had a, a mass or something on his stomach. It was, it was huge, the size of a bowling ball, and it just, it just jutted out right below his chest. The thing looked like some kind of like, obscene jello mold made of raw hamburger meat. It was a red mottled mess of tissue that it shook violently each time they pressed down on his chest. Oh, it was fucking disgusting. And it was mesmerizing. And then it started to bleed. What the hell is that? What's happening to his stomach? I, I didn't notice at first because the, the lump was already so red and raw looking. It, it, it started weeping blood out of the pores of his skin. Thin trickles of blood started coming out of every inch of that thing. The doctors and nurses seemed just as confused, but, but they didn't get a chance to do anything about the blood before it, before it started to split open. There was this sound. The skin on the mask tore apart at the places the blood was coming out. It happened so fast, but you could see these tiny tears open up and, and, and just widen all over that disgusting lump. And then, oh, then it popped. Blood and bits of skin went flying across the room. It was, it was like fucking confetti from hell and it, it covered everything and everyone. I, I ran into the room to get a better view because the windows and everything was streaked with red. No one stopped me. They were all just, they were just frozen, staring at the ruined hole in my father. I got to the foot of the bed and that's when I saw it. Oh God. That's when I saw it. Inside. Inside the hole, inside my father, there was, there was this mess of wriggling uh, tendrils. I don't know. It, it, it looked like a giant pile of worms or, or, or snakes without skin. Pink, slimy tubes that slid around on, on top of each other. I staggered away from the bed. The doctor pushed past me to stand in front of it. She leaned over to get a better look. And all of a sudden, the tendrils shot out and wrapped around the doctor. They held her arms. They were wrapped around her body. They tied themselves to her legs and pulled her closer. And then the rest of it came out. Oh God, oh God, oh God. When the rest of it came out, it was sharp and, and ankled, and it had patches of hair, fur in some places, and, and scales covering it in others. 
The tendrils were attached to its stomach, and it, it had legs like a spider that seemed to stretch out from its back. The spidery limbs reached out of the hole and gripped the sides of the table. Its head was long and narrow, like a crocodile. Its jaw, it unhinged at the bottom, and it opened wide as it pulled the doctor closer until until her head was almost inside its mouth. Long, black, dagger teeth lined the top and bottom of its jaw. A huge, gray tongue snaked out and wrapped around the doctor's head. And then it jerked its head back, ripping the doctor's head free from her spine. And then it opened its mouth towards the ceiling so her so her head could slide down its throats. And then it turned and looked right at me. It had oily black eyes that locked onto mine. It opened its mouth and then... And then it turned away and propelled itself out the door. It was fast, scuttling out of the room, crawling from, from floor to ceiling. And in no time, it was down the hall and out of sight. There wasn't even time for us to scream. We just, we just fucking stood there inside this charnel house it had made from that hospital room. Oh, God. Sandy, I... I had no idea. No wonder you can't sleep. That's not why I can't sleep. I mean, yeah. Okay. I'm sure all of that is keeping me up, but that's not what haunts me. What do you mean? When, when it turned its head towards me, when that monster opened its mouth... It said my name. Sandy. Officer Sims, stop the tape. There's more, sir. Well, I've had enough. I mean, really? A monster? Come on. It's been weeks now since these two went missing, and you want me to waste time listening to this crap? Either this guy is delusional, or he's made this shit up to hide what's really happened with his wife. Either way, I'm not going to waste any more time on this little horror story of his. But sir, the scene at the hospital? The missing head? It happened just like... Yeah, the crime scene was a real mess. The forensics team can't explain what happened, and no one who was in that room is talking. I don't know what happened at the hospital, but I can tell you there sure as shit wasn't some monster that popped out of this guy's father and started eating people. Do you really buy that story? Creatures exploding out of people's bodies? It's like a bad take on one of those alien movies. You think maybe we should call in Sigourney Weaver for a consult? Or should we just round up some villagers with pitchforks and torches to chase the monster out of town? Jesus, Sims. If you really want to be a detective someday, you need to pull your head out of your ass. Detective Carlisle, sir, the only lead we have is this guy Sandy Bailey, and he and his wife are nowhere to be found. Their cars... Credit cards and cell phones were all left at their house. All we have to go on is this tape. 
Finding the recording at their home today was the first break we've had since this thing started. I get that what he's saying is crazy. It's nuts, I agree, but it's all we have. Anyway, listen to it or don't listen to it. You're the detective, but don't give me grief for doing my job, sir. We found new evidence and I brought it to you. Why are you mad at me? <sighs> You're right, I'm sorry. There's just a lot of pressure to solve this thing right now and I've got nothing but blood and ghost stories to go on. Leave the tape. I'll listen to the rest of it later. I just need a couple of minutes alone, okay? Yeah. Okay. But, um, Detective, can I ask you a question without you getting pissed off again? What is it? Well, I understood the Frankenstein reference earlier about the villagers and pitchforks, but who's Sigourney Weaver? Kid, you got three seconds to get the hell out of my office before I turn into a damn monster. Jeez, sorry I asked. I'll just Google it, okay? I'll leave you alone. Christ, that kid makes me feel old. He's right, though. This is all we've got. Just some nut on a tape. Uh, fine. Let's see what else this lunatic has to say. He... He said my name. It... It sounded like Dad. I don't understand it either. The, the, the whole fucking thing is insane. After, after everything that happened, it turns to me. Bits of bone and skin falling out of its mouth. And then it... What is that? No. No, 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 no. No! 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 Go away! You are not my father! Leave us alone! Please! Trying to deal with maintenance issues in your apartment can be a real pain. Even more annoying when you finally strike up a rapport with your building supervisor and the next day someone else entirely takes over. And when the issues are things like creeping mold, it's important to get them dealt with quickly and efficiently. In this tale, shared with us by author Justin A.W. Blair, we meet a man trying to deal with such issues despite some less than conventional circumstances. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Ellie Hirschman, Dan Zapula, Nicole Doolin, and Jessica McAvoy. So when you call the front office and ask for help, you'd better hope that your apartment isn't under new ownership. I'm going to call a lawyer or some shit. I'll do something about it. The mold is growing. 
And yesterday, I even stopped by the office to tell someone about it. Can I help you? That's what you would expect to hear from the office manager of an apartment complex, right? That's not what I got. There wasn't even anybody sitting at the desk. On top of that, it's like they don't even have the air conditioning on. Must be a hundred degrees inside. Sticky and heavy. Hello? Anybody here? I was dressed in my pizza delivery uniform. I had woken up late. My shift started soon and I didn't have time for this shit. I just needed to tell somebody about the mold. Get it fixed. In and out of there or give me my fucking deposit back. Nobody answered. I'd never been inside the office before, though I had lived here for two years. I always just slid the rent check in the little bronze foldy swingy deal on the front door. I pulled out my phone, 4.30pm, and I would be late. Wouldn't matter, there wasn't a long line of people who wanted my job. Hey! Hello! A door opened at the back of the square room. Out popped a thin, grey man. He pointed upwards, a waiting gesture, I guess, and I put my hands on my hips while he took a little paper cup in hand and filled himself some water from a cooler. It burbled back at him, and then he turned to me again. May I help you? Yeah, I I live in apartment C, building BB. There's some mold or something started growing out of one of the vents. Pretty sure it's mold. It's kind of black and green. Need someone to check it out. The man took a drink and looked at me like he was studying something under a microscope, sipping his water, quiet, unresponsive. So, can you get someone over there? Presently. Presently? What? Well, no, I gotta go to work. Tomorrow. I can send someone, yes. If you are certain you want that. My shirt was itching me, clinging to me. Florida summer, humid, and I hadn't washed the shirt from last night's shift. Or maybe it was the mold. Maybe I was having an allergic reaction or something. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I pay the rent on time. I don't want to live around mold. It's not good for your health. Did you know that? Hmm, well, let me see. The little guy who I'd never seen around before, I guessed he was just the office guy, just stood there, finishing his drink. A strange-looking, tiny fella, with a head too big for his frame, thin red lips dressed in a cheap suit. He even refilled it again and didn't offer me one, and then finally went to his desk and consulted some paper. I raised my eyebrows. I huffed. I puffed. I made many gestures and noises of irritation and impatience. I gotta get to work. Hmm. 10 a.m. tomorrow? 
No, no, no. Listen, I work late nights. It's got to be around 2 p.m. earliest, probably, you know? Can we get that penciled in or whatever? Are you certain it is mold? I mean, it looks like mold. Hmm. I'll dispatch someone at the appointed time. Fine, great. See ya, thanks. I got out of there. Something about the guy gave me the creeps. Well, that was yesterday, and now I'm having my coffee and my morning cigarette, and it's 2 p.m. No one's showing up yet. And the shit is spreading, growing, pretty sure. When I got in last night, pizza oil sheened all over me, tired, not a lot richer. The first thing I did was study the mold growing out of the vent, covering a good portion of the ceiling in the living room now. Tendrils is the word. Tendrils of the thing expanding, grasping, and growing. I go over and take a picture of the mold before I open the door. I want a record. I'll sue these assholes if I get sick. The same thin gray man stands at the door. His little paper water cup in hand, but dressed in a uniform like a maintenance man unitard thing. Sure isn't the usual maintenance guy. What did that guy's name mean? Rick or Steve or something like that. Good day. I'm here to check on the mold. Yeah, I talked to you yesterday. I wasn't here yesterday. I mean, you're the guy I told about it yesterday. Hmm, no, I think not. I'm the maintenance man now. New ownership, you see. You probably don't recognize me at all. It was the same motherfucker. And I didn't like being lied to. I mean, I talked to you yesterday, but whatever. New ownership. He shuffles inside, taking small steps and stares up at the ceiling. His skull is too large for his body and his mouth opens a bit as he cranes his neck up, flashing a perfect row of tiny teeth. Like baby teeth. He sets a red toolkit down on the floor. Did he see me cringe a little? You didn't receive the... Flyer? I don't get my mail here. <laughs> Who even gets mail anymore, you know? Hmm, there should have been a notice. I don't know. Does it matter? So, what, the new owners replaced the usual maintenance people? That's right. Can you show me the issue? I point up at the ceiling where the grey-green stain is spread out from the vent. The exact place the guy has already been staring. You can see it growing in wafts, as if it rode through the air conditioning out. Shit is flourishing, is what it's doing. Flourishing. I mean, it's right there. You're looking at it. You've been staring at it. He takes another sip of his water and then turns his foul little glaring smile on me. 
saying nothing in reply. The black, gray-green shit growing out of the vent? Hello? Hey, who lives upstairs? Did they have a leak or something? Several people vacated during the transition to new ownership. There is no one upstairs presently. Presently? Who the fuck uses that word? Not two people in a row, I can tell you that. Same fucking guy. Okay, so what do you do? Whatever, to get rid of it. You put bleach on it? We will take care of it. And then he just stands there, looking at it, grinning his sharky infant smile. I stood there too for a moment, then realized I needed some more coffee. I needed a lot of coffee. I walked past him just on the other side of the half wall that separates the living room from the kitchen. Over the sink, the wall opens up so you can see into the living room. I fill up the coffee mug, and it sounds like he's whispering something to me. What's that? He doesn't answer, but the chanting sound keeps up. The hair stands up on my arms for no reason, and I slam my coffee cup down, irritated now. Hey! You talking to me? You need something? He keeps whispering, like he's reciting something. And I step around the wall, and the fucking guy is just standing under the stain, muttering with his eyes shut. Then he opens them and looks at me. Hmm? You were saying something to me, guy? No. So... I have alleviated the problem. And he bends over, picks up the toolkit, and starts to walk to the door. Hey, 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 now. What? You didn't do nothing? And I'm getting pissed. I just want to punch the guy in the face just over and over. But I don't think touching him would be too good. There are other tenants I must tend to. If the problem persists, visit our office and we will take further steps. Presently, all is in good order. Ah, uh, but you didn't even do anything. Oh, yes, while you were getting your coffee, I put. Hmm, what were you saying? Bleach on it. He opens the door and walks out, and that was that. At work. And man, why the fuck am I still delivering pizza at age 30? My neck hurts from watching too much videos on the computer last night, and my lungs feel gummy, like they hadn't cleaned out right after I slept. Who knows? You look like shit. Dan was alright. Too old to do this job, like me. His breath smelled like vodka. Always. Sure, but you smell like shit. Better chew some gum before you go in and the manager smells you. Yeah, no though, really man. You look like shit. What's up? I'm smoking and sitting on the brick that juts out under the big window to the front of the pizza place. There are bits of dried gum encrusted on it, and black smears where customers and drivers stub out their cigarettes. The rush hasn't started yet. 
Mold, man. I think I got mold in my apartment. That it? It's fucking Florida. Cockroaches, hurricanes, and humidity. Mold is a thing. Yeah, but I guess some new people bought the place, and there's this guy. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know. He's fucking weird. I mean, you meet weird people, you know, doing this job and all. But he kind of... I think he was pretending like he hadn't talked to me or something. Whatever. Yeah, a dickhead, huh? No, it's it's like there's something not right with him. His head is real big, and his teeth are real small. But it's like he's not... Dan just looks at me, fumbling for some gum he keeps in his pocket, finally unwrapping a piece and popping it in his mouth with his hungover, shaky fingers. It's like he isn't a human. Dan snorts and spits his gum out, and finally, when he quits laughing, starts looking for another piece. So, like, your landlord or whatever is a monster, huh? Ah, man, I'm telling you, he's, like, not human-looking. That's all. What, he looks like a fucking werewolf or something? Not, like, human or not, like, an animal or plant. I I don't fucking know. Not the same as you and me. Like human, animal, mineral or some shit? Like that old game, 20 Questions, remember that? It was a driving game or something. Shit if I know. When I get home, I go into the bathroom, and there are these little dots of mold on the wall behind the toilet. They weren't there before. I'm sure of it. I hate the sneakiness of mold. I'm gone for five hours, and then it just appears. Mold is a coward. I fucking feel like screaming. I'm already undressed, getting ready for a shower. After work, you're so dirty, your pants bunch up, driving so much, and the ball sweat pools. Don't matter, I got air conditioning in the car, it's so fucking hot in Florida during the summer. And you get pizza stuff just all over you, the sauce and shit, and the fumes from the ovens, it coats you in grease. Your hands smell like meat products and wet dollar bills, and your hair smells like onions and gasoline and smoke. So all I want is a shower. And here's these dots of mold. Fuck it. I take some rubbing alcohol out of the medicine cabinet and squirt some on some toilet paper and I'll clean the shit off myself. Oh, I should take a picture of it first. Lawsuit potential. But I'm naked and I don't want to go into the other room and get my phone. I swipe at it and it comes off. But the spots break off, and the wall starts oozing this dark brown stuff where the mold used to be. I jump back and trip over my work pants on the floor and hit my head on the towel rack as I stumble. Ah, fuck! I get my bearings and just watch the wall run, spurting from tiny pinprick wounds. Fuck me. Fuck me. 
There isn't nothing else to do but clean it some more, so I do, and the wall finally stops bleeding. But there are pox and dimples left where the mold used to be. Fuck me. I take a shower. I get about two to five hours of daylight. Depends on the season. It's summer, so the days are longer. It's growing around the doorframe. Tiny, thin lines of it, tracing the ways in and the ways out. It's spreading on the ceiling, and the pattern makes me dizzy. The floor blossoms with dark patches as if something is pushing up beneath it. All this overnight. So... At the office, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to do whatever I have to do. Hmm. No. No. Right now. I'm calling off work. Right now. I want professionals in there. No more maintenance. I looked it up. I can withhold the rent if it isn't fixed. That's the law. I found it on the internet. You want me to not pay you? The man takes another sip of his water. It's so fucking hot in here, but he isn't sweating at all. Fuck this motherfucker. I go over to his water cooler. I take a little paper cup from the neat stack and fill it with water, and then sling it across the office floor. I knock the stack of paper cups over. Not all of them fall. You like that? You want water everywhere, huh? See, the mold grows where it's damp. Something is fucked up. It's a thousand fucking degrees in here. Why don't you use air conditioning? I sling more water, and then I wrestle the entire five-gallon jug up from the water cooler and dump it sideways. Not much pours out. I'm out of breath. Thing was heavy. He doesn't move. He doesn't look unhappy or afraid or pissed. He doesn't call the police. He just sits there, doing nothing. It's inhuman. Now I start to come back to myself. I'm leaving. Where would you go? Tomorrow, I want it fixed. No, fuck it. I'm not moving back in there. I want a new apartment. And I want moving expenses. We will tend to it. What does that even mean? I'm out the door. If he decides to call the cops, I don't want to be there. I've had a little trouble in the past. Nothing serious. I can always come and pick you up, honey. You can stay here for a while. No, Mom. I have to fix this, you know? I have to fix it myself. Well, sometimes we can't fix things by ourselves. Sometimes. Do we need to visit the doctor again? I have a little money, enough for it... It's... it's... it's not like that. It's just real life. I hang up and rub my eyes. I decide to pick up a shift anyway. I might need the money if I move. I don't want to stay at home. There isn't anywhere else in particular to be. 
The night is the same as it always is. People tip a dollar or two. People complain that their order is too slow or too fast or wrong. People complain. How can you ask someone to drive your food to them across town and then hand them a dollar? And then the order comes in from my own apartment complex. You know them? Nope. I look down. It's a double mushroom extra large. No soda, no sides. I drive there. That's what I do. I drive places and I bring people food. The apartment is on the other side of the artificial lake that forms the center of the complex from my own unit. It's on the second story. Easy to find. Gotta hand it to the complex. They laid it out simple. Full of fucking mold and creepy fucking lying goddamn baby tooth motherfucking monster maintenance men. But good layout. Hey, great. It's a younger girl. A little younger than me. Most girls are younger than me now. Pizza. In case that wasn't obvious. Yeah, come in if you can. Set it on the table. I walk in. The apartment looks nice enough. It's decorated like someone cares. And not just cheap stuff. But the girl has a real eye for color, I guess. I don't know. You see a lot of living areas when you deliver. It's hard to make an apartment feel like a home. Some people have a knack, I guess. And I feel light and dizzy. Because there on the ceiling is the same gray-green patch of mold. Oh, man. You're having the same problem I am. What? I live across the lake. I've got a mold problem, too. Is the guy fixing it for you? The new ownership? My chest is constricting now and pulsing with the pattern of the mold. She looks nervous and a bit confused. Her hair is sloppy. I notice there are dark circles under her eyes. I don't know. I mean, when did it start for you? For me, not long ago, but it's spreading so fast. Sorry, how much do I owe you? I look down and hand over the credit card slip. You paid by card, just sign it. So, yeah, so that new owner, or owners, they're weird, huh? I don't know. Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Lady, look at the fucking mold on your ceiling. She looks up, looks up for a long time. She starts to whisper. The credit card slip falls from her fingers onto the floor. And I notice now the floor is covered in the pulsing gray-green splotches. I'm hypnotized for a moment. And I see her face and she's reciting something? I finally realize she's praying. You don't see it? She turns to me and smiles. Hazy-eyed, pleasant, not threatening or anything. But just not there. I don't see anything. I turn and leave. I don't retrieve the credit card slip. Instead, I go to the gas station just outside the apartment complex. It's so humid out. 
I have to defog the windows and the love bugs or whatever you call them are breeding. They come in waves in the heat. They're stuck in my windshield wipers and smeared across the glass and floating up into the great and tall fluorescent heavens. I buy the gallon container, a small one, the only one they have. Why are they always red, gas canisters? Who cares? It's nice and cold in the store, and for a moment, I think about just sinking to my knees and staying as long as I can until someone calls for help. But I don't. These are real-life problems. Filling it up at the pump, the clean, burning smell of the gas vapors erase the dizziness. They make me feel... lucid. I don't go back inside the store, but I sit in the car for a long time. The phone rings. My mom. The phone rings again. My mom. The phone rings manager at the store. The phone rings, and I don't recognize the number. I pick it up. It's only chanting. I hang up, start the car, and drive back into the apartment complex. I know where the old ownership used to have the living quarters. I'm guessing it's the same for the new ownership. Really great layout. Easy to find just by the office. Sometimes we face real problems. There's not a lot that can stop mold. I looked it up on the internet. Should have called that lawyer, though. Inside the apartment, I hear the chanting as I splash the gas around the perimeter and pull out my pack of cigarettes and lighter. My hands feel oily, but... I gotta say, I feel restful and at peace, even clean. We've all heard about zombie apocalypses. We all have a good idea how they might play out. Namely, lots of people dying. But what would the world be like after the zombie apocalypse, when society's rebuilt and the authorities have a handle on the situation? In this tale, shared with us by author Neil Noon, we hear about one potential outcome. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Kyle Akers, and Aaron Lillis. So join us as we hear from four people talking us through the events of a certain incident. You might call them soldiers or grunts. Rolling 
In the wake of the outbreak, once we'd got the cities at least to a place where they could run again, although obviously at a lower, slower, older level, the army got a lot of flack for not instantly cremating the infected we'd captured. I'm not talking about the ones handed over to the medical gang to try and understand what had happened. Of course there was support for that. But everyone had lost so much. All they wanted was to see piles of the bastards burning. All the better if they're still moving. My family lost less than most. I guess because... Well, we were rich. There's no point in denying it. And in the early stages of the collapse, money could still buy you things. Guns, supplies. My family even found contractors willing to barricade our ground floor, put up basic siege defenses. Being detached in its own grounds, it was pretty defensible. We had to pay the workers a fortune, of course, but I wonder if they ever got to spend it. I came within one phone call of deserting. I can say this now because, I mean, I didn't, did I? Because all that stopped me was, I mean, I had my backpack packed, extra ammo, extra rations, but I got a call from my brother, Robert, where, at home, where, where I was going. It was... While the network was still, you know. He just wanted to let me know, I guess. He said, he said that he loved me and he was glad I was somewhere safe. He meant the base and not to come looking because all our loved ones were my parents, my sister, all of them. Also, he'd been bitten himself. He said, if I ever see you again, Walter, you know what to do. I don't talk about back then. I'm really just focused on a better future or whatever. I say I lost less than most, which is true. And I'm grateful, absolutely. But still, a full half of the family didn't make it. Even then, on the anniversary every year, we give prayers of thanks. At least they were only killed. They didn't go over. Our priest didn't believe in having funerals for victims who'd been bitten, but not, well, executed, basically called this prick creeping out of the crypt where he'd hid for the whole outbreak to say if they're not dead and by dead he meant not moving they can't go to heaven i said where the fuck in the bible does it say anything about anything like this but they pulled me off of him before he could answer the army's position was that all the lost should be honored and we made sure there was a military presence at every event it is true that this was partially, if a body was actually present, to make sure it was a hundred percent unresurrectable. We'd repurpose slaughterhouse bolt guns to destroy the relevant brain region with minimum splashback. And although all funerals were mass affairs, for both logistics and safety in numbers, most survivors were still, well, prone to be pretty jumpy, understandably. So having a sniper overseeing the service made it go a little smoother. I signed up at my father's funeral. There's a 10 minute line, because if you were young and you'd made it through without losing a limb to friendly fire or being burnt in a crash, what else were we gonna do? Open a coffee shop? For who? With what coffee? What the public didn't know, didn't need to know 
was that we had good reason for not just herding the infected into some furnace. For starters, given the basic collapse of industry, all our high-tech weaponry is suddenly worth its weight in gold. And so, in the years that followed, our country chose to concentrate what military resources we could muster, ring-fenced for obvious reasons, on what we called guided assault units. When we finally revealed what that meant, what we'd managed, which was unprecedented, by the way, the complexity of the interface alone, they were obviously protests from the other side of the water. All these survivors' groups suddenly saying, but what about their rights? This is the infected they're talking about. The rights of the active infected. We couldn't believe it. It felt kind of trippy being online again. I mean, obviously not the same as it was ten years before, but the fact it was military only didn't matter. People still found stupid stuff to do at the edges, so long as you were off duty. I mean, I grew up in the 20s, basically handwriting letters, taking them to the post office, waiting for replies. So to text with a friend stationed in a foreign country, instantly? They even think they'll have commercial video back next year. Maybe. The first time I plugged into the interface, I puked. This is actually pretty common for all kinds of both boring and disgusting reasons. I remember being shocked at how fast they could move. I mean, I was a kid in the outbreak. I was mostly, I now realize, sheltered. The training area was in the desert, not where we were, the pilots. That was this big converted hangar on base. I mean, where the bodies were. I can't tell you. To be able to run and jump and climb and fall in that sandbox without ever getting tired, without ever feeling any pain, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think I'd be allowed to use the word fun exactly, but... I was so sick the first time. Travel sick, I guess. They weren't sure they should put me in again. And I sort of wish they wouldn't, to be honest. At least until I looked across and saw Mahoney spidering hers up pretty much a sheer rock face. And I thought, what else are you gonna do? Join a cult? Worshipping what? Looking down at their hands, you were lucky if they had the full ten. In rags of their old clothes, because no one's getting close enough long enough for a costume change. Even feeling basic feedback from their weird, wiry muscles lurching round this red-hot landscape in almost electric spasms. Luckily, the tech guys didn't bother with olfactory feedback. It wasn't a decision taken lightly. That's the first and most important thing to say. And if you look at our record, for a full five years before, we had tried to cooperate every step of the way. They were hoarding resources. They were keeping secrets. Our position was that all surviving nations and or city-states should be working together, and we were happy to take the lead. We even gave warnings which were not just ignored, but rejected. Our ambassadors insulted. Fine. We had secrets of our own. On my first run, I was part of the team to breach the perimeter. Ten of us, ten feet apart, walking along the riverbed. We were going against the current, but those bodies are so strong. And ten feet above, the light trapped the other side of the surface. 
We came up out of the water in the corner of the camp filled with portable toilets, actually. My first kill was, yeah, it was a civilian, sadly. One of the plant workers, I guess. He was still doing up his trousers. I just stayed professional. Bit out the throat like we'd been shown. It had been 10 years. A lot of the guards were new. They knew, theoretically, what to do. Lower limb, then headshots. But until you've got bodies swarming around you. Also, because remotely, we had finer motor control and working memories. We could, once they'd raise the alarm, grab their weapons and use them against them. <laughs> Surprise! Of course, you try and finish them as quick as you can, but it's like throwing a rag doll around. Plus, they're panicking. They won't stay still. I feel bad, but a few times I ripped an arm off or whatever and didn't get a chance to go back. Someone else came running to engage, and we had limited backups back in the ships. There must have been some cleanup the next morning. The first time I got killed, it, it was pretty shocking. Obviously, you don't directly experience any pain, but the life leaving the body, that you feel, even over the link, even from over the sea. It was like a shiver that runs like a wave through your body and back. Only then, just as suddenly, the system reboots me in a second-line body back in the support transport, and I'm running back toward the action. We'd hoped they might retreat to minimize casualties, but the relief when they actually did was <laughs> incredible. Obviously, they were in shock. They didn't know what was happening, only that the infected were apparently back and somehow smarter, like they'd evolved, which, in a way, I guess... The end of the mission was kind of surreal. With no enemy fire, there was no need to run. So we're just piling all these crates from the lab down on the beach. The water was black and the cargo ship had a single red light to aim for. Wandering across the sand toward it under these huge weights of oil drums and gas tanks, straining even their arms. Every now and again, you'd cross paths. Another team member swimming, dead-faced, out of the dark. But seeing them move slower, working together to do something useful, something purposeful, I don't know. These bodies, clumsy under their burdens, struggling through the moonlight. These stupid, broken things given one last chance to help out. It was sort of... Well, whatever the plan was, we took way more than ever expected possible. Filling the hold with machine parts and fuel cells and hard drives and raw materials until there was no room for the bodies themselves. And so they were left there on the far shore. That felt, that felt... As far as we were concerned, that was that. We had the assets we needed. We'd have preferred not to have been blamed straight away, but it turns out the camera implanted in the bodies' heads had some component only we had access to. Again, outrage from abroad. We said, okay, well, let's work together so we never have to do this again. Some outrage at home, too. We politely inquired if the community leaders in question would rather we sent their surviving offspring on a borderline suicide mission. For now, at least it did shut the powers abroad up. They didn't have interface technology anything like ours, most hadn't even considered it. 
but you could bet they'd already be reverse engineering what was left after the cranial bombs of our fallen detonated. In fact, some of these supposedly enlightened regimes had quite literally liquidated their infected completely. So how could they talk morality? It wasn't our fault they'd completely thrown away what, with a little ingenuity, turned out to be a resource. Meanwhile, at home, the religious sector was already on our side. We're happy to source scriptures saying, more or less, we were only doing what was right and good. But the hardcore sentimentalists, the ones whose loved ones were missing, presumed infected, there were a lot of difficult questions. Do you have access to their memories? No, nor do we want them. Holy fuck, can you imagine? Do you use kids' bodies? No, we said. Not yet, we thought. I'm still basically certain that what happened that day, to me, started off as a joke by some sick tech fuck. And that's all I have to say about it. When I finish my sentence for destroying government property, then I'll shout about it. I promise you that. To anyone who will listen. To put it into context, there had already been seven protests and three minor disturbances. And most of the casualties each time were security services. My men and women. Every time there was a march. Sure, they all start peaceful. But then one person decides they need to make a point. And nothing makes a point like a kitchen knife or a broken bottle. The first five times we absorb it. We let them damage property. We watch them throw stones. But then an officer gets killed. Some girl who grew up and joined up. Not some mindless, hollowed-out, let's-face-it zombie. I'll use the word, and I don't care whose feelings I hurt. They're not human anymore. I don't make the rules. But when you kill one of mine, I will enforce them. It was pretty tense the days before. It's, it's weird being the face, you know, of this unelected government and their, well, obviously unpopular policies. And they didn't really have enough regular soldiers, so us pilots were redeployed from the hangar to the front line. Pretty scary facing your own people, especially when it was your own totally breakable body in the way. People would chant that we were worse than the infected because at least... They didn't have a choice. They begged us to join them and stop this evil. They repeated that a lot. Sometimes you'd see people you knew in the crowd almost screaming it. It's not as big a town as it used to be in terms of people living in what's left of it anyway. To get to sleep, we were assigned earplugs to blank out all the crying in the barracks. I think if the main... The big riot had started in the center of town. We could have been a lot more measured. But whoever's idea it was to attack the gated communities? I mean, yes, I get it. That's where the leaders' families were. But what did they think the leaders would do? 
As I've said again and again since, no, we hadn't always expected to use the AUs in our own territory. But yes, we did have the foresight to envision what that might look like, if it ever became absolutely necessary, and thought hard about appropriate measures to limit fatalities. Which is planning, not plotting. Okay, you know what? You should know what happened to me. Someone needs to. They should pay for what I went through. So yeah, the riot had been going on a day before we were told we were going in. The regular forces had lost control of the suburbs, and the gated community was basically besieged. So, you look down at your arms and you see these almost mittens. Day glow yellow, so they stand out all the way up to the elbow. Our muzzles had been spray painted the same color, exactly so civilians could see. We couldn't grab, we couldn't bite. But good luck stopping us, because we're already dead. Psychologically, it was smart, I guess. Just seeing us in the distance definitely sent maybe two-thirds of the rioters jogging home pretty much instantly. Plus, we were, you know, under instruction to move slowly, arms up. Remember us? We're back to give you just a little nudge. Unfortunately, the other side of seeing us coming was that some people got so freaked out they started climbing all over each other. People are hurting each other. And suddenly a few have actually made it over the wall. I saw Pickford's body go running past me and I knew we were in trouble. Those communities hold a lot of people. And yes, they are privileged. And yes, some of them are related to the people who, okay, might have done things you do not agree with. But some of them are also the mothers and the uncles and aunties of soldiers who did okay in a previous life. And if you think I'm gonna let you burn down their houses because we didn't show your dead the maximum possible respect, no, fuck you, I will not just watch. The safety features were kind of rushed together. I think that became obvious pretty quickly. I'd sort of shepherded a bunch of screaming people away from the wall without too much resistance. But when a couple needed nudging and they wriggled free to run, again, screaming, it became pretty clear the mittens weren't as secure as they should be. And that worried me because the thing about the link, the thing no one ever talks about is that, sure, you're in control running, jumping, grabbing. But the bodies also, and it's unpredictable, to be honest, sometimes when you get close to a, um, a living, if we're calling them um, us, that sometimes you can find the jaw starts snapping whether you like it or not. In the end, we're not in there alone. I don't know what had happened to this guy. Maybe he'd lost everyone. I can relate, but... This guy wouldn't stop. I shunted him away. He wouldn't stop. I swatted him a little, hoping to wind him or stun him or just scare him, really. But he wouldn't stop. He got right up to my face, and he was throwing his whole self against me so hard, my muzzle was rattling. I was the first responder over the wall, and at first, all I did was patrol the other side. Seeing me in there stopped a few people even trying. But then somebody got me good from behind. Someone with a baseball bat that knocked me down to my knees. My muzzle was rattling, and this guy kept coming. He was trying to wrestle me down. I was... I wanted... I wanted to cry for this guy. What he must have been through to become this 
stupid. This in need of justice or symbolism or whatever. And it's hard to subdue people peacefully when you're as strong as the infected because bones <laughs> break so easily. Anyway, in must have been five minutes of struggling. By now, I'm just hoping he gets tired. He really only manages eventually to pull off my right mitten. And that gave the fucker pause. He doesn't like the look of my three-fingered claw, so he's frozen, but I'm frozen too. I'm looking down at this arm. I don't know how many times she hits me, but it's a lot. I guess she thinks she has to bust my skull, which is more or less correct. Although she's taking a risk with the cranial bomb. Anyway, the problem is the muzzle. The pretty simple, pretty cheap frame of painted metal takes a good portion of her efforts, and as I stand, it falls to the floor. Pickford's somehow over the wall, in direct violation of our mission directive. And then, on the other side of me, I see Stroheim literally, like, running away. No one chasing him, just some roughed-up guy alone and confused. But after covering 100 meters and some ridiculous inhuman speed, Stroheim still isn't stopping. I'm watching him disappearing, and maybe there's a problem with the cranial bomb, is all I can think. But it's not my job to find out. I turn back around to the crowd, which is definitely thinning, and I raise my hands. I come in peace. Get out of my way. I come in peace. Get out of my way. It turns out she was basically a criminal, as in she'd been involved in civil unrest multiple times, covered in homemade tattoos, too. No self-respect. And say what you will about what happened to her, which I maintain was only partially my fault. When the others saw it, you better believe they climbed the fuck back over the wall. People are streaming past me, screaming like some fucked wildfire. Pickford, or, you know, the body Pickford's in, is standing there on a lawn with fresh blood dripping off the front of it, head to knee. This makes the yellow mittens look sort of disingenuous. I think it's fair to say that we maybe didn't consider in appropriate depth the confusions that might occur when our own infected, albeit almost entirely neutralized, were deployed in our own community. The first shot goes through my arm, which would make it pretty hard to climb out again. Every time I see a sign of life, I alter my course away from it. The second, my torso. Worse than useless. I turn back to try and calm them down. That's not a euphemism. My mittens are up. I'm heading for the countryside. Anywhere but here. Somewhere I'll be where this body will be safe. My Auntie Helen shuffling toward me with her pistol firing every step. I want to say, not the torso, Auntie Helen, the head. A message from Control. Specialist Stroheim, where the fuck do you think you're going? I'm walking backwards to keep her out of arm's length. But then my back's against the wall punctuated by a completely irrelevant groin shot. I don't stop till I'm in a field. Just a field. There are trees, even a stream. My jaw snaps. And I kneel. I know they can't pull me out of the link and leave an infected body in the wild, especially one with one mitten off. I look down at the uncovered arm, and I swear it's almost like I can feel the heat of the sun on it. My jaw snaps. The heat of the midday sun on my sister's tattoo. My name, Robert's name, mom and dad's names, wrapped in flowers. If I could kiss it, I would, if it wasn't for this fucking muzzle. In the cool grass, in the midday sun. My jaw snaps back as Auntie Helen finally puts a bullet through my eye, thank God. I reboot back in the control room, laughing. 
And this was before I got the promotion. Yeah, it must have been funny to some tech fuck. Hey, this guy's got the same name as this host body. Little joke. It's not like he can see himself. It's only crowd control. Another message. New link incoming. Specialist Rathers requesting override. Refused. Specialist Stroheim, this is your final warning. Return to the troop carrier immediately or seat control to Specialist Rathers. Mute. My sister's name was Gabriella. She burnt everything she ever cooked. She invented dance moves that no one ever copied. She loved turtles and hated all sports except obscure athletic events, which she mostly found endearingly funny. She was 21 when the outbreak reached her university. And now she's facing the stream, sparkling in the cool grass. I love you, Cap. Under these, yeah, hot spears of midday sun, when I detonate the cranial bomb, a shiver runs through me like a wave and back. In our final tale, we meet a young boy. He's lost. He wanders the streets, looking into all the houses at the people inside. But as we learn from author Laura Cabral, when he reaches one door, a family takes him in. But this has happened before, and every time it does, it leads to a terrible events that the boy cannot avert. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, and Jessica McAvoy. So let's join this boy on his lonely walk as he heads towards tragedy, as he gazes at the light from the windows. I'm walking on a quiet suburban street. The sky is fully dark and light spills from windows onto the lawns and hedges. I avoid looking at my reflection in the glass as I try to catch glimpses of the people inside. Some of the curtains and blinds are closed, but some of the families are careless. I pass by one house and watch two parents putting their twins to sleep. When you're staring out of a window at night, in a brightly lit room, you can't see anything outside. But it's so easy to see inside from the dark. I watch each parent kiss each child on the forehead until the dad shuts off the lights. I pass up that house. I don't want a family that already has kids. I choose the next one on the street and knock on the big front door. A man in his thirties opens it and smiles at me, like he knows me. 
as if I'm his son. Hi, Aiden. Come in. So, I'm Aiden this time. I step over the threshold and meet Aiden's mom, sitting at the dinner table in work clothes. There's already a place laid for me, with a plastic cup and a plate full of chicken and mashed potatoes. It's plain, but it's the first food I've had in days. It tastes wonderful. They don't ask me where I've been all day. They never do. When it's time for bed, I'll find a room just for me. There's usually a closet full of clothes that fit me, a bed just my size, and toys and things I don't recognize. It will be my first time sleeping indoors in three days. It's worth the price I'll pay in a little bit. The mattress is soft. Before I fall asleep, it's easy to pretend that it's really my room and my house and my family. I look 11, maybe. I'm not sure how old I really am, but I'm not 11. The next day is a Saturday. Before breakfast, I look through Aiden's things. Aiden's room is full of model planes and pictures of astronauts. I have pancakes, steaming hot and covered in syrup, and then Aiden's dad spends the rest of the morning building model airplanes with me. He designs the real ones, and he talks about it as we're working. It's almost funny. Aiden's dad and mom will take a vacation sometime soon, and their plane's engine will fail. They'll die on impact. It'll be quick, at least. Some of the other deaths weren't. Those are the ones I feel bad about. The ones that keep me out on the streets for days, when all I want is a hot meal, a bed to sleep in, and an end to all the walking, hungering, and looking through windows. At lunch, Aiden's dad looks at me closely. I steal glances at him, wondering if he's starting to think something is off about me. Have I been caught, finally? You're eating a lot. I nod with my mouth full. It's rude to talk with food in your mouth, after all. Uh, you must be growing. I swallow and try to smile back. I never grow. I just prepare for when they'll die, and I'll have to walk again. I feel better if I can go a few days without choosing another house. My time in this one is already ticking by. I read about a bird called a cuckoo in a book in another boy's house. When I can't sleep at night... I always wonder if I'm taking another kid's place. If my parents, whoever or whatever they are, left me in someone else's house. I want to ask them why my new parents always die. 
I want to ask them what I am, but I haven't seen any sign of them as far back as I can remember. My first memories are of being hungry and cold, and knocking on a door to accept a name that wasn't mine. I've been to a lot of schools. There's always a desk free for me. I'm always the new kid, but nobody notices that I don't know my way around. This is my 10th time reading Bridge to Terabithia, and I like it even less than I did the first time. I know how it ends. A hush falls on the class every time when the rest of them figure it out. Leslie is dead, and she's not coming back. Maybe some of them think it will still turn out okay. That this is like a movie and she'll come back, alive and unhurt. I know better. Most of these kids don't really know what it means, even though it scares them. They don't know how to lose someone, and they probably won't for a while. Once, I could have hated them for that but I'm too tired for hating. The recess bell rings, and it's a relief to get out of that class full of growing kids. Kids who will grow up to live without guilt, without a trail of dead parents in their wake. Some days I can't join them in their games. I feel like my arms and legs are so much heavier than theirs. But today, one of the monitors is watching me, when she thinks I'm not looking. I join in on a game of basketball, running and jumping with the rest of them. Am I really getting so bad at pretending to be a kid? The first few times it was easy. I thought, I am a kid. But lately, I'm not so sure. Some people seem to suspect that I'm not normal, maybe not even human. But it's almost never more than suspicion, and I'm always out of the neighborhood quickly. I've only ever been shut out of a house once. I knocked late at night, and a man answered. He looked at me for about a minute and got this scared look on his face, his eyes all wide and his mouth open like a fish. He didn't invite me in or ask what I was doing out there alone at night. He just slammed the door on me without saying anything. It hasn't happened again. I want to know what he saw. If I look different before I become Aiden or Dylan or Will. I want to know if I don't look like a boy who's 11 years old, like the image I see in the mirror when a family accepts me. But I can never bring myself to look at my reflection when I'm out walking. I know I'm some kind of monster, but I don't know if there's even a name for what I am. And it's easier to pretend to be a kid, not knowing. 
They have their flight booked. Just a short vacation. I have three days left, and then I won't be Aiden anymore. So, I enjoy it. I make time for them, begging to bake with them, to shop with Aiden's mom, or to just sit and watch movies in the living room. They've been good to me. Not all families are. As I sit between them on the couch, munching popcorn, I forget for a while. This is what it's like to be part of a family, to bask in their love. It's not real, and it hurts, but it's better than nothing. They leave me with the babysitter. Her name is Brianna, and she lives in the neighborhood. That night, she makes hot chocolate for me while I watch a movie she brought from home. One of her old favorites, she said. But I'm not tasting the sweetness of the cocoa or laughing at any of the jokes. I'm waiting for the news. It'll come in a matter of hours. I look over at Brianna. She's doing her homework and not paying much attention to me. When Aiden's parents are dead, I could easily get her to invite me back to her house. All I'd have to do is ask. She'd be a really cool big sister. I look at her again and imagine what it would be like to die so young, like Leslie in the book. She has so many friends and people who care about her. Would anyone remember me if I died? Or would my death be as unnoticed as any other parasite? I go to bed early. When I wake up, it feels like no time has passed at all. It happened. It felt like there was a kind of string tying me to the house and the family, and now it snapped. I go downstairs, making for the front door. It's best not to linger and delay the inevitable. Brianna is sleeping on the couch. If I try to shake her awake, she won't see me. She won't cook for me or read to me. This house isn't mine anymore. The first time my family died, I thought someone would help me and take care of me. I waited and waited and hoped that the policeman or the coroner would notice me. But nothing happened. It was like no one could see me anymore, like I was no one. After a few days had passed, I went out to find another family, and another, and another. I have a feeling that if I ask Brianna to take me back to her house, she will listen. Her parents will feed me and take care of me. They're nice people, too. I stand there for a bit, thinking about it, but I know them too well to let that happen. It's much easier to let someone die when they're a stranger. I leave the house and leave her alone.
The next day, my stomach is rumbling, and it's cold. But I'm not ready to pick yet. I keep hoping that someone will come looking for me, that I'm still Aiden somehow. It's amazing that hope still comes so easily to me, but no one sees me. I'm out on the streets and on my own until I choose a door, a family to destroy. It would be easier if I could fend for myself at all. In neighborhoods like this, trash bins are behind locked gates and fences, except on garbage days. I wish there were grocery stores to steal from, but I can never find one. I remember what they're like from trips with different families, how cold and bright and huge they are, but I never see one when I'm out walking. Between families, the world is an endless string of residential streets. I'd rather live by stealing food. I walk for two days, stomach rumbling. Sometimes I sit on a sidewalk and watch people come and go. Would I die if I starved for too long? Maybe I'll find out. I keep walking, mostly to distract myself from the hunger. On the third day, I arrive on a street with big, beautiful houses. It's dark, and dinners are cooking all over the street. I smell barbecue sauce and stop. That's too much. I follow the scent up a pretty stone path to a big front door. The light from the windows is buttery warm, as welcoming as the smell of the food. I can see right into the kitchen. There's a woman moving around, checking on something in the oven. My hand has a mind of its own. I watch the woman straighten up and walk over to the door, peeking out the window. I want her to turn me away. I want her to run and scream and get help. I want her to smile and let me in. I want her to be my mom, for her to live forever. She opens the door. Hi, Noah. It's a good name for a boy who always escapes disasters. Too good. But there was one thing I couldn't see from the window. A high chair. I stare at the baby, and I want to throw up, even though I don't have anything to throw up. I've never had a little brother or sister before. Sometimes I have much older siblings or steps, but I've never had anyone younger, and never a baby. Noah's mom looks at me, eyebrows drawn together in concern. Something wrong? Nothing. 
She goes back to preparing dinner, and I go to my room and try to pretend that my world isn't crashing down around me. Usually, I'm careful to avoid picking houses with kids. I see bicycles and toys on the front lawn or by the door and move on. I was stupid to think that this would never happen to me. I know how they'll all die. I can see it clearly as we eat dinner. The baby, Matthew, will get sick, and they'll get very worried and drive him to the hospital. They'll leave me behind and they'll have an accident with a drunk driver. I have about four weeks. I've become very good at estimating the time I have. The ribs taste like mush, even though I haven't eaten in days. The baby giggles and chatters in between sloppy bites of his food. It's hard to look at him, so I look at his parents instead. The dad is tall, and Noah would probably be tall if he could grow up, too. He's not handsome, but he has nice brown eyes and a smile that comes easily, especially when he looks at me and Matthew. The mom has a long nose, but on her face, it fits fine. She's pretty tall, too. I should go on ignoring the baby, but it's unfair to him. I owe it to him to be the best big brother possible, even though I don't know how that works, really. I owe it to him to look at him, at least, because he'll die, and it'll be my fault. I take a breath. He has big blue eyes, like the idea of a baby like those little baby angels in paintings. It's easy to think of him as nothing more than a very, very realistic doll. He turns those fake baby blue eyes at me and smiles, and I still feel like I'm holding a knife to his throat. Noah's room is big, big enough for two people. The whole house seems like it has room for more people, like maybe Noah's parents are thinking about having more kids after Matthew grows up a bit. I can't help but think about those kids who will never be born. Next to pictures of me and the baby, or Noah and the baby, Noah's mom and dad have copies of paintings in the hallway. Some of them are famous and familiar. I've seen them in books. But there's one that catches my eye, in the room where Noah's dad does work and keeps files and things. Noah's mom passes by and spots me staring at it. You like that one? It's interesting. I realize how strange it must be to her that I'm suddenly noticing this painting. Either she doesn't notice, or doesn't care. It's called Nighthawks. How do you like it? I don't know. It's a strange painting to put in a house, I think. It doesn't make me happy. The colors are too sharp and cold. I guess it's supposed to be old-fashioned, charming, but all I can imagine when I look at it is someone standing just outside that wall of windows. 
It looks like there's no door and no one can get in, but the electric light spills onto the sidewalk. Why do you say that? It seems kind of... I don't know... I search for the kind of word an 11-year-old boy should use. Lonely, I guess. There's no one out on the street, and it's late at night. She examines it again. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it too much. You're right. Over the next few days, Noah's mom remarks on how quiet I am. I hear her whispering on the phone to someone when she thinks I can't hear. Her sister? Her mother? Once, when she doesn't know I'm close, I hear the woman on the other end clearly. He's just an old soul, always has been. She has no idea how right she is. It turns out that being a big brother is hard when you know your little brother is going to die soon. I try to avoid the baby for days. But on Sunday, after church, Noah's mom has me watch him while she does some laundry. He's lying on a blanket in the living room, bathed in soft afternoon light, holding some noisy toy. He flings it out of reach and looks lost, so I hand it back to him. For some reason, he decides to grab onto my finger instead of the toy. Matthew's grip is stronger than I thought it would be. He stares into my eyes, and it's like he's trying to tell me something. I can't escape from the fact that he will never tell anyone anything. He'll never do more than baby talk. He'll never learn to ride a bike or read a book. He'll never have little brothers or sisters, and those kids will never take their first steps and fill this house with laughter. I've stolen that chance from them. I've stolen all their days and all their joys. When I take my shower, I find a razor, probably Noah's mom's. I've wanted to do something like this for a while, but I'm not strong enough to let myself starve to death. This is better. I don't deserve to exist. All I do is want and take. I press the blade against my skin. Blood seeps out, running down my arm, until the wound closes like it was never there. I try again, 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 again. Every time my skin seals back up, holding me in a life I no longer want. I try to cut deeper and deeper, but even those wounds fix themselves. 
I'm shaking when I stop trying to kill myself. I clean off the razor and watch my blood drain away. It's clear now. Death won't take me too. If I can't end my life and save their lives, then I can only try to be the perfect, happy son. I spend the next days going through the motions of Noah's life. Noah plays baseball, Noah goes to church, Noah is polite. Noah helps his mom and dad with chores. Noah helps care for his younger brother. Noah doesn't think about what's coming for his family what he's brought on their heads. It's hard to pretend that the outcome of this baseball game matters to me, but I try my hardest. You look kind of tired. We head out of the park and into the parking lot. She noticed. I can't tell her why I'm tired, because a boy my age shouldn't be having trouble sleeping. I think I just need a snack. We'll get something to eat. Noah's dad smiles. Matthew really enjoyed watching the game. He was riveted the whole time. I smile over at Matthew, even though this is just another reminder that I'm stealing the rest of his life. I have about two days left. Lying awake in bed, I end up thinking about how I tried to kill myself. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. I know that my family will be killed in a car accident. Could a car kill me? If I walked out into a busy street, would that be the end of me? Of, of all of this? It dawns on me then. Covered in moonlight, looking out the window, I realize that there might be some other way of stopping this cycle once and for all. The answer's been right in front of me the whole time, like maybe someone gave it to me on purpose. I know how they'll die. So maybe I can stop it. I could persuade them not to go to the hospital, convince them to wait for the morning. Could it hurt to try? It's the night they're supposed to die. I hang around as Noah's mom puts the baby to bed and notice that he's having trouble breathing. She tries to clear his airways, but nothing works. She calls Noah's dad in, and they decide to take him to the hospital. I know how this is supposed to go. They'll want to leave me behind. Noah's dad rushes the baby to the car, and Noah's mom lingers in the house to collect her purse and the bag for the baby. I'm coming too. You don't need to come, it's late for you, and there's probably nothing really wrong. She's lying, of course. No, I'm coming. My voice comes out as a low growl I didn't know I could make, and I grip her hand tightly. 
She pulls her hand away and backs up slowly, looking at me like she's really seeing me for the first time. Oh, oh, okay. You can come with us. Noah's dad doesn't ask any questions when I take a seat next to Matthews in the back of the car. I want you to watch him, Noah. I nod as we all buckle in. Every time a car passes us on the narrow country lane to the hospital, I think it's the drunk driver who will kill them. But they all pass us by, headlights raking us. Noah's mom keeps looking at Matthew and me in the rearview mirror. It's hard to say who she's more concerned about. Does she know she let a monster into her house now? Does she know that something bad is going to happen? We're not far from the hospital, and my heart starts to flutter with fear and hope. Maybe being here means it won't happen. Not tonight. Maybe I'll just have to keep pushing their death back. I can do that. I can live with that. I'll probably always be looking out for things that could kill them. It's a life on the edge of a knife, but that's better than sitting back and letting it happen better than having to pick another family. That's when headlights flash in my face. There's a car headed straight for us, driving on the wrong side of the road. There's a guardrail to our right, nothing Noah's dad can do to steer out of the way. I won't be able to save all three of them, but I unbuckle my seatbelt and throw my body over Matthew. I can shield him. I won't die no matter how much I bleed. There's a sickening crunch and creaking, but my eyes are closed. I hold on to the car seat, covering the baby, feeling glass and metal cutting and bruising me. The cars come to a stop. I'm bleeding, but all of my hurts stitch up. Shards of glass falling out like I'm shedding scales. I glance to the front seat and see only broken glass, crumpled metal, blood. I look away. I know by that frayed feeling that they're both dead and I'm homeless again. But Matthew is alive. I can feel his breath against my neck. I saved him. I get him out of his car seat. He starts crying, but his breathing is coming easily again. There are bruises forming on his head where he bumped against me, but when I look closer, they're already disappearing. After a second, his skin is perfect again. I start shaking. What have I done? Blood pounding in my head, I take the baby in my arms and pull him out of the wrecked car. He still looks like a baby and not some monster.
I watch and wait as the emergency vehicles arrive, as firemen and paramedics check on Noah's parents and the other driver. They rush him away on a stretcher and completely ignore us as they work on recovering the two bodies. I start walking down that country lane before I can see too much, with the baby in my arms. The road eventually turns into a residential street, which doesn't surprise me at all. I'm good at ignoring my hunger for a while, but he's not. After the sun rises, he starts crying. An old man and a little old lady stroll by, and they don't see us. For a second, the old lady turns her head in our direction, like she heard something weird. But they keep walking. I don't want to knock. I don't want to kill another family, so I put it off for a few hours. But now, I have the baby to worry about. People are turning out lights when I finally choose a house. No evidence of other kids that I can see. I'm not sure I could save another one. A woman in a fuzzy bathrobe answers the door and smiles at us. Jake. She takes us inside. Most adults would freak out if a kid holding a baby showed up at their door, but she takes the baby from me without question, and I follow her as she gets a bottle and a sandwich from the fridge in the kitchen. As me and the baby eat, I see how she'll die. Her husband will kill her with the gun they keep for emergencies and then he'll shoot himself. We'll survive, like always. This woman doesn't deserve to die. None of them really do. The peanut butter and jelly sandwich feels thick in my mouth, like I could choke on it. And wouldn't that be a funny end for me? I swallow and take a drink of milk. I'm not doing this just for me anymore. Maybe I can save these people like I saved my baby brother. And maybe I can't. But I'll plan something and keep trying. I'll build and protect my family, one way or another.
As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.